together in prayer. Lord, this morning we have been acknowledging you, your greatness, the greatness of your power. It's nothing that's impossible for you. We've also been acknowledging, Lord, that you are the one who gives us assurance and that in light of all that you've done for us in Christ, Lord, it just makes all the sense in the world to surrender ourselves to you and that we are to bless you, whether you give us the things that we're longing for and asking for or whether you choose to take things away from us. Lord, we bless your name. Father, it's not an easy place to stay surrendered before you, but we pray that we might at least be humble before you today as we come to your word. Pray that your word would help us, Lord, to see Christ and to see you more clearly. Holy Spirit would help us, Lord, to magnify Christ and that we would see the wisdom of his words. We would see the importance of his warnings and that we would heed, Lord, his calls, his invitations. And that, Lord, you give us eyes to see the greatness, oh, the greatness of your grace and of your patience toward us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I begin with a question this morning. How is it that Jesus of Nazareth, who received the approval of the voice out of the heavens when he announced, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, the same Jesus who received a divine statement of approval at the beginning of his ministry, The same Jesus who healed the incurably sick, who walked upon the water, who raised the dead to life, and who was put to death, however, by the Jewish religious leaders who called for his execution. How is that? That someone could come and give such compelling evidence of his Messiahship and yet be rejected by the leaders of the Jews. How is it that the religious leaders, the elite, if you will, of the chosen people of first century Israel, by and large, rejected Jesus of Nazareth? And how are we to make sense of the serious consequences that are going to be meted out or have been meted out to those who reject Jesus and those who refuse his gracious invitations? We're in Matthew's Gospel, and we're, we're going to pick up now our, our study. We've taken a couple of weeks' break here. But as a Jewish author writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, Matthew devoted a lengthy section in his Gospel. In Matthew, in, this is chapters 21 to 25. It's a big chunk of this particular book. To an, he's going to devote that now to helping us understand the intense opposition that Jesus faced from the Jewish religious authorities in the third and final year of his public ministry. And in this section, we read of Jesus repeatedly issuing warnings to those who sought his destruction. And Matthew pointed out that more, that the, all the more, I mean, all, sorry, Matthew pointed out that the more his opponents sought to destroy Jesus and to ensnare him in various forms of controversies, and the more they found fault with Christ, regarding his authoritative claims, the more Jesus outwitted them, 
the more Jesus exposed their hypocrisy, and then the more Jesus pronounced judgment on their determined rejection of Him. And so this morning we're coming now to the last of three parables that Jesus directed to the religious leaders who opposed Him. And if you look at chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel, you'll notice in verse 45, it's very clear that they knew that these parables were spoken directly at them, as we read in verse 45, mentioning the Pharisees and the chief priests. The first parable we noticed in chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, contrasted the two sons of a vineyard owner who, who uh, pointed, and Jesus, in using this parable, he pointed out that there are some who make a profession, but they do not match that with their practice. And so clearly that alluded to these religious leaders who say a lot of words that sound so good, and yet their lives uh, contradict that. The second parable, verses 33 to 46 of chapter 21, featured a wicked tenant farmers who were punished for attempting to somehow seize the farm that belonged to its rightful owner. And therefore, Jesus, in using that parable, indicated the attitude of the religious leaders toward the true and rightful owner of the kingdom. They really wanted to have their own kingdom. And now we're going to come to chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And the parable we're going to consider now is going to compare the kingdom of heaven to a royal wedding feast. And notice what happens when some people refuse to attend it. I'd like you to follow along now as I read this parable, chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. It is a parable of judgment. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man, not dressed in wedding clothes, and when he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I want to try my best this morning as we look into this text to avoid the danger that many people fall into when they interpret a parable. You create an al- create, make it into an allegory. This is not an allegory. This is a parable. And I want to draw your attention to three lessons that I think can easily be taught 
are clearly taught in this parable. The first is this. I want us to notice the king's patient, or you could put the word gracious, gracious heart revealed. Because he offers undeserved and generous invitations and extends them to all. Now, in order to interpret this parable accurately, we must understand some of the background of a royal wedding feast. How many of you have ever attended a royal wedding feast? I thought so. Neither have I. So I'm going to fill you in a little bit about that. But I would imagine most of us are a little bit familiar with royal weddings because, as you know, not too long ago, several months ago, there was a rather significant wedding took place in England. And we, I'm sure many of us, how many of you joined and actually watched the coverage of the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton? Okay, some of you got up earlier, I guess, watched the replays, whatever. Joined with millions of people. It was an expensive, elaborate ceremony. It was attended by some of the most famous people in the world. The reception afterwards served some of the finest food that could have been prepared in a luxurious setting in Buckingham Palace. I mean, it was over the top. And some have estimated, and again, I went online, tried to find out this number, but some have estimated that the cost to have put on such a spread in terms of preparing all the clothing and the whole bit, the food, the, everything, between 30 and $40 million for one wedding, for one day. Now, that sounds pretty fantastic from our standards, but I want you to think in a first century mindset that the wedding reception described here is going to top even that because a wedding reception and a celebration of the kind described here in this parable in again the first century mindset they would have envisioned something far more impressive because a first century wedding reception would have lasted not one day it lasted a full week seven days of celebration Seven days of feasting and of celebrating was the typical royal wedding feast. Now, the people of Jesus' day clearly would have viewed this event as the premier gala event of a lifetime. To think that one of these things might occur in your lifetime would have been the the biggest event possibly that could have happened for anybody alive in the first century. And everyone knew that the best food, the best wine, would have been generously provided, brought out with tremendous, in an impressive manner, unequaled by anybody who could pull off what a king can pull off with all of his wealth and connections. So with this in in our minds as a background now, Jesus includes in his parable the unthinkable. Several citizens who were privileged enough to receive a personal invitation to come to this once-in-a-lifetime royal wedding Look at verse 3. We're unwilling to come. What an outrageous response. I'm sure Jesus heard people exclaim when he said that. Like, what? No way. What were these people thinking? Why would anyone refuse to come to a royal celebration? But then notice Jesus added another element of surprise. He mentions that the wealthy, all-powerful king who extended this gracious invitation to various numbers of people, he did something outrageous. 
he sent his messengers out again, which was the normal pattern. First, you send them out and invite them. You give them the formal invitation several weeks in advance. And then when all the preparations have been made and everything's been put in its place, then they're told, okay, here it is. Everything's ready. Now come. And so he sends out these messengers a second time to the same people who have already indicated, I'm unwilling to come. I don't want to come. He sends them out again, informs them, listen, everything is ready. Verse 4, come to this wedding feast. I've got the best of the best. It's been prepared. You can come and celebrate for a week. I think the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, what kind of king would send his messengers to inconsiderate, disrespectful, disinterested citizens like this king? And the answer is, clearly, this is an intentional exaggeration. Nobody, no earthly king would have ever thought of doing such a thing. If you're going to offend him and show disinterest, then he's certainly not going to invite you again. But this king does so. This king was an exceptionally gracious and patient king. If you don't see that in this text, my friend, you're not reading it very carefully. But there's more. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus shocks his hearers with what happened next. Verse 5, they paid no attention. These were invited a second time. They paid no attention, went on their way. One to his own farm. Can you imagine turning down a royal wedding to go and work with the livestock, cleaning up their mess, feeding the cattle, picking corn? I mean, come on. You've got to be kidding me. To finally think you could take a break and enjoy the royal treats and blessings of the king. No. Went, on his, went back to his farm. Another went to his business. And the rest seized the slaves, the messengers, and mistreated them, which means they probably beat them. And some were actually killed. Now this response to the king's gracious offer makes us realize that this was no small matter. This was an expression of angry defiance against the king. They hated the king. They despised the fact that he was the king. And they made it very clear they were going to do whatever they could to resist the king and not do anything to show that they were on good terms with him at all. Would you notice, my friend, in this text that one of the things that Jesus is trying to show along with conveying the fact that the king is incredibly and amazingly gracious and patient, they're also trying to indicate that the king's patience was not without limits. Did you notice that? Verse 7, the king was enraged. And there were some consequences that came as a result of this kind of disrespectful and rebellious attitude toward the king. And clearly, this text in that particular statement in verse uh, 7 indicates, and as a word of prophecy, that Jesus is speaking to the first century Jewish leaders and he's indicating, listen, the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because of the kind of reception you've given to the Messiah and your insistence on rejecting and showing no interest at all in the Messiah who's been sent, Jesus Christ. And the king's response to these acts of defiance and rebellion toward those Jewish religious leaders who refused to come to his wedding feast and then attacked the messengers and the prophets, actually. His response as the king clearly was reasonable 
And it was understandable in light of the actions of these particular citizens. I want us to notice one more thing about this king, though. Well, you notice that his servants, next we read, were told to go and invite everybody. I mean everybody. The king desired to have a full palace to celebrate with him and his family, and no other member of royalty clearly would ever have dreamed of doing such a thing. This particular king, though, is so full of grace. He is so full of of, uh, a willingness to extend himself to those in this kingdom who perhaps normally would never ever see even come close to a king. He says, no, the breadth and inclusiveness of this king's invitation indicated that he is one clearly who is abundant in grace and generosity. And by inviting everyone, the king obligated himself, and he clearly knew that there are many that he's now going to be inviting who would not have the resources to wear appropriate clothing this kind of a setting. And the understanding was that the king would supply anybody and everybody with royal garments, royal clothes that would be suitable and appropriate to wear in this kind of a week-long festival. That's assumed in the text. Here is Jesus wanting these scribes and Pharisees to see how gracious and how merciful God was to extend to them this invitation that Jesus has been extending to them as the prophet, the greatest prophet of God, saying, listen, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Don't just be religious. Don't just think that you are earning your own self-righteousness as a way to to find your way to God. He says, abandon that and come come to 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 the kingdom through Jesus Christ. Embrace the Messiah. Here's Jesus wanting them to understand that there are very serious consequences when you reject Jesus as the Messiah, as the way to God. As I've read through this text, I've become quite concerned to realize that there are some people in the 21st century, not just in the 1st century, 21st century, who take for granted God's mercy and God's patience. There are those who assume that God will continually exhibit His patience toward them because they have experienced His patience all throughout their life as they've gone on their merry way and they've never really come to terms with what they are are, uh, responsible to do toward God. They've just lived their own life, done their own thing, maybe tipped their hat to God occasionally, but they really are and desire to be their own king of their own little mini-kingdom. And I would remind people like that that if they read this text, that there is really a call here in the text implied if you think of God's patience as always being shown to you and what you've received thus far will always be what you receive of Him, if you choose to ignore and reject Jesus Christ, I would urge you to look at Romans 2.4 as Paul points out the appropriate response we ought to make to God's patience. Not to be presumptuous, but to call us to repentance. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Many people do. Many people presume upon God and said, you know, God, I deserve better than this. Not knowing that God has shown them grace and mercy, allowing them to live when for, for who knows how many times they have collected up a debt and how many times they've rejected and rebelled against God, and yet He has shown them patience. Back to Romans 2.4. 
Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? Leads you to repentance. (laughs) That's what God's kindness and patience are supposed to be doing in, in us. And in this parable, Jesus is giving His enemies, the people who despise Him, He is giving them one more opportunity to repent. The God who will one day punish those who refuse His rule is the God who has exhibited incomprehensible patience. And the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, the King and the Sovereign Ruler of the universe, exhibits His patience to all of us who are here today. You may not be aware of that fact, but that is true. All of us have received and been the recipients of God's patience toward us. And while all of us are created for God's glory, it is true that all of us have rejected Him, we have rebelled against Him, we have refused to give Him the honor that He deserves as God, and even be thankful to Him. So oftentimes we're so taking things for granted. And yet God, showing the greatness of His mercy and grace and patience, He invites everyone, everyone, no matter your background, no matter your heritage, no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomic status, your educational level, no matter your marital status, your age, your moral failings, I don't care where it is you come from or what it is that makes you unique and different, the fact is God invites everyone to enter into the delights of fellowship with Him through Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of heaven is not, my friend, if you look in this text, it is describing the kingdom of heaven is being described here as not that which is an endless drudgery and that which involves demanding duties that go on and on and on forever and ever and ever, which is what those scribes and what those uh, Pharisees thought the kingdom involved. But notice it says here, my friend, the kingdom is described as a celebration with the king of all the goodness and greatness that the king has. It is an eternal joy and soul-satisfying pleasure in God. That's what the kingdom of heaven involves, my friend. Psalm 1611 reminds us that God is the only source of true and lasting delight. In God's presence, the psalmist says, is fullness of joy. In God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. How could you not want to be in the kingdom? It really does beg the question, doesn't it? Jesus extended a number of broad, inclusive invitations in His earthly ministry. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus is speaking in chapter 22 of Revelation. And what does He say? Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take of the water of life without cost. The invitations are there. The expression of God's mercy and graciousness and patience are clearly evident. Oh, how patient is God when so many people reject His gracious offer. Don't just reject Him, but they oppose Him and they defy Him. His patience, my friend, and this is what we need to take to heart in this text, His patience will not last forever. His justice will one day be meted out against those who have treaded His patience underfoot and who have kicked dirt upon His gracious invitations over and over again. 
The king's heart is gracious and patient. Don't miss that in this text. I want us to continue, though, to move toward understanding what it's saying, though, to those who don't share that kind of heart of mercy and grace and patience. Now we focus on the citizens who are depicted in this particular parable. The citizens' defiant hearts are revealed in this text. Defiant. Because they're repeatedly rejecting God's gracious invitations. You see, one of the important assumptions in this parable is that refusing an invitation to come to a royal wedding reception was a serious offense. A very serious offense. An incomprehensible offense. Yet this is how a number of people in the first century and a number of people in the 21st century respond to the King of Kings. They stubbornly refuse to show God any respect They stubbornly refuse to respond to God with the slightest form of reverence. They view God as a tyrant. They resent the fact that they are not king and that their plans have not come to fruition. And they therefore, like the religious leaders, they become jealous of somebody else who somehow has something happen better than them. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're, they're jealous of Jesus and His popularity. They're jealous of the fact that He indeed is one who is gathering quite a following behind Him. Not a few people today are offended that they are compelled or called upon to submit to a divine authority. They refuse and they'll never submit to anybody. Time and again, God has extended invitations to His subjects, and yet they reject His goodness, they reject His grace, they reject His generosity. Notice verse 3 that indicates that this refusal that was described in verse 3 is a refusal that came in an ongoing way. The verb there indicates it was not just a one-time refusal, but a refusal that went on and on. We see this kind of attitude today, do we not? Among those who insist on explaining human origins. They're so determined not to have any kind of God, any kind of creator in their life, or anyone who is a higher form of authority, moral authority, they have to give account to. They'll do anything to try to avoid that reality. They have now put all of their hope and trust in explaining human origins apart from the personal creator God. And they've bought in wholesale to the views of naturalism and materialism and a deliberate commitment to create a worldview that excludes a creator personal God. It's rampant in our culture. And interestingly enough, came across the writings of a Harvard biologist named Richard Lewontin, who wrote several years ago of his commitment to naturalism, and he let the secret out of the bag in a book review, in the New York Times book review section. He said this, quote, It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world. He's saying it's not just because we do science better. On the contrary, we are forced by our a a priori, that is, our our ongoing preconceived conclusions and our uh, assumptions, that adherence to material causes to create a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Now, here's my point. If you didn't follow that, just listen to this statement. He went on to write, Materialism must be absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot 
in the door. Unquote. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Did you catch that? We don't want any kind of God sneaking into the world in which we live that we would somehow therefore have to be accountable for and responsible to. A creator God who therefore then writes laws that would bring moral obligation and accountability. Many people who buy into naturalism, an explanation that, that all that exists in the world has nothing to do with a real God, and they come up with some theory to somehow explain that, many of them, underlying that passionate commitment, is a determination to what? I don't want any kind of God getting his foot in the door of my life and dealing with me on any kind of level that would hold me accountable. Other people we see in this text treasure their own pursuits. They treasure their own business ventures, the things that they can hang on to, their accomplishments that they can pursue. And they substitute other self-focused priorities when they're extended the invitation to come to the unspeakable privilege of feasting with the king in all his glory, and they pay no attention to that. They go their own way, verse 5, and they live their life with no thought about enjoying life with their king. They're slavishly devoted to seeking their significance and their identity through their own accomplishments, their own pursuits, and they have no time for God. Perhaps some of us, even here today, might give God part of a morning once a week, but the rest of the week really is my time to do my pursuits of what I think is important so that I can gain my significance and my identity apart from God. So many people live their life today as materialists in that way. And then others, of course, have hearts of anger. And they are determined to do what they can to roadblock the king's agenda. Notice verse 6 where they mistreated, they seized and killed the king's messengers. These are people who resent God's warnings. They resent God's pleadings. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day became irritated at Jesus. Why? Because as the greatest prophet of God, he exposed them for who they really were. He called them to task for their compromises. We're going to see that very clearly in chapter 23. Believe me. He nails them again and again and again, exposing them. They replaced the word of God with their traditions. They demanded more of their disciples than they were willing to do. And they're filled with hypocrisy, this and that, whatever. The hearts of religious people often are exposed when they perceive God as a roadblock to pursuing their own goal of having their own kingdom. And so somebody, some people in their, in their refusal to come to the, to the banquet feast of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's too often they have the self in the middle of it all. And so they have, in many ways, we would call it a defiant heart. Well, let's look thirdly at the citizen's duplicitous heart because we're looking now at the last part of this verses here. Once he did invite everyone to come, the king finally entered into this great celebration hall, verse 11, and we realized that there was a problem here. One man attended the feast. He was not appropriately dressed. And apparently this man stuck out. There was something odd about that because everyone else apparently did wear and had, was wearing the appropriate clothing. 
this was highly suspicious because the king, as I said earlier, had provided suitable clothes to anyone who did not have the proper garments of their own. And so to show up dressed in an improper clothes was clearly an offense to the king. It was an example of the utmost disrespect to forego the royal garment that had been provided freely to any and all who needed one. So this man thought he could attend the feast on his own terms. So he wants to be there, but he wants to be there on his own terms. He doesn't want to do what the king would expect or ask of him. And when asked by the king how it was that he came without wedding clothes, what did the man do? There was no answer. Nothing. Clearly, he had no excuse. There's no explanation he could possibly offer. He had nothing to say to defend the indefensible. He was expelled from the feast. He was left in outer darkness where he was to experience endless regret and frustration, which is what I understand uh, what it meant in verse 13. Weeping and gnashing of teeth to me means ongoing regret and frustration. My friend, there are some people who joyfully accept the invitation to follow Jesus. And they appear to be genuine disciples for a period of time, maybe for a long time. And there are people like Judas who give their outward indications. It's a biblical example here. Judas gives these outward indications that he is loyal to Jesus. But his commitment is superficial at best, if not suspect. You say, how do you know? Well, for three years, Judas masked his underlying heart of greed. What was really controlling his heart was not a love for Christ, but it was a love of himself because Judas was stealing from the disciples' fund that they had collected together. He was the treasurer and he was uh, embezzling from it. We read in John's Gospel. He also was the one who accepted the bribe to betray Jesus. Money was the thing that really held his heart. And so he coexisted with the disciples, but his heart was unchanged by the Gospel. And there are warnings that Jesus has made numerous times In the Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 13, we've noticed that Jesus warned that in the kingdom of heaven there are going to be tares. You say, what's a tear? We're not talking about the tear in your clothing. T-A-R-E. It is a weed that resembles wheat. Looks very similar to wheat, except it never actually sees all of the grains grow at the top and then curl over with the heaviness of the grains that fall on top of a normal wheat plant. They just grow up. And, right, and so he says they grow right beside each other. You can't hardly tell them the difference until finally the seeds of the wheat finally mature and show it the evidence of what actually is wheat. And unbelievers who appear to be Christians are going to coexist with true Christians in the church. It won't be until the day of judgment that one's true heart condition will be revealed. And Jesus warned in chapter 7 a similar kind of warning when he wrote in verses 20 and 21, You will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus said on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is a a reminder that Jesus has here in this parable that the true evidence of God's work of regeneration, the true evidence of the fact that someone who has had a change of heart, who has come to Christ in true repentance and faith, And the evidence that their heart has truly been changed is holiness of life. 
It is sanctification. It is the changing of the Spirit of God working to make this person into a person that they no longer, uh, no, what they no, changing from the past and moving more and more become more like Christ. And the call here in this text, we're reminded is the call to come, the invitation come, extended to all. It's extended to all. Only a few, however, exhibit the fruit of justification, the fruit of sanctification, that bear witness to the fact that they are the true chosen of God. Many are invited. As one commentator said, only some some refuse to come. Others who do come, they refuse to submit to the standards of the king, and therefore they are rejected. But those who remain, my friend, those who persevere, those who show evidence in their life and in their commitment to Christ that they indeed show perseverance in that, indeed they are the chosen ones. They are elect ones. It's not just if you have a lineage of, from Abraham and you can track your ancestry and say, well, I am one of the chosen ones. That's a false assurance, my friend. You know that you're a chosen one when you see what? The evidence of the Spirit of God working in your heart and life in obedience to Christ that perseveres, a faith that perseveres. I trust as we look through this parable that God will give us eyes to see God more clearly in His grace and patience and mercy toward us and realizing that He is just to give the kind of consequences He does to those who refuse His gracious and kind invitations. Let's pray. Father, I pray again that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts here today to see the glories of you, our God. All the glories of your gracious heart in sending Christ here, the greatest prophet, God in human flesh, speaking the words of God, living out the life of God among us. And yet how he was rejected, hated, despised, spat upon, schemed against, betrayed, and then ultimately crucified on a Roman cross. Yet, Lord, we thank you that those he came to extend the invitation to all to come and join into the kingdom of heaven, that great feast, a great celebration, a great time of joy in your presence. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who provides us that robe of righteousness that all of us need to be properly clothed and to enter into such an incredible, privileged gathering. Father, I pray today that you would convict the heart of anyone who's here today, Father, who has been acknowledging perhaps an outward willingness to say, oh yes, I'd like to come to that feast, but they really have not fully surrendered. They really have not given up some idol of their heart Perhaps they themselves are still committed to doing their own agenda. I pray, Lord, for those who we know or others that might be even even here today, Lord, who have a heart that's so hardened, defiant against you, Lord, a heart that's determined to resist you as king. Oh, Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, melt away that resistance. Open their eyes, Lord, to see the glories of Christ, to see the glories of your kingdom see the rich treasures that are offered to any and all who will come. Father, we pray that you might help us to continue to speak words of patiently with those around us who seem so disinterested in your kingdom. 
And Father, we pray that you would draw many into the glories of fellowship with you. And may Jesus Christ be praised forever and ever. May all glory go to him for showing such great graciousness and kindness and patience to each of us unworthy sinners. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.